Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dying Light, a podcast exploring scripture, apologetics, and church history from a Reformed theological perspective. Here are your hosts, Alex and Paul. Hello and welcome to another episode. I'm going to be without Alex on this one, so I hope he listens and hope this is of great edification for all. We're going to be diving into the important subject of hermeneutics, and I plan on doing a lengthy series on this, maybe many, many months. This is a very important subject that's just overlooked, and no one really pays much attention to it. Uh, So what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the tool and method we use for interpreting the Bible or any given text. For example, I have friends who are in in law school, and they know what hermeneutics are, even though they they don't study theology under their career. So hermeneutics is applied literally to any text as a tool for interpreting it. And we need a specific set of skills. That kind of sounds like the movie Taken. We need these skills to extract the original meaning of the text as understood by the original audience. That's not an easy task. One of the great gaps we must face is that of languages. We don't speak Hebrew, Aramaic, nor Greek as our mother tongue. As our original language. So we need translations. At least most of us do. Because you know, not everyone is a seminary student. Who knows Greek. And Hebrew even less. Hebrew is a very very complex language. So the first episode. Is going to be on Bible translations. Which translations should we use. How translations came about. We're going to focus on the English Bible. How we got our English Bible. And there are just so many to choose from. I'm going to just name a few study Bibles because they're really popular. I don't like using them because sometimes you always look at, at the study notes as if they were part of the inspired text and many people use them as proof texting for different doctrines that they might believe. Just to name a few, the Open Bible, the Thompson Chain Reference Study Bible, which is really good, by the way, at least the the, the study parts in the back, not the notes. 
uh, the NIV Study Bible, ESV Reformation Study Bible. I have one of those. It's quite good. Uh, the KJV Promise Keepers Men's Study Bible. What a long name. Wow. The HSBC Study Bible and about 50 other possibilities at least. And we need translations because, as I said before, no one speaks ancient Hebrew, which is not modern Hebrew, or Koine Greek, which is not modern Greek, as their daily language. So we're going to go first into what is a translation and how translations come about. A translation is nothing more than transferring the text's message from one language into another. You know, I, I go to the Mormon temple, my local Mormon temple, with a friend from church quite often. Not as often as we should or as we would like. And they always use the a very bad argument. They say that they believe in the Bible as long as it's um, correctly translated. But Mormons, what they mean by that is that the Bible has been translated as transmission. Like the translations are in and of themselves the transmission of the text. And they totally ignore that we have over 5,700 manuscripts from which to base our Bible from. And many Hebrew manuscripts too, which are very, very faithful to the originals. And they just totally ignore that. And they think that it's like the telephone game when, when little kids play and transfer one message to another. And then the message is obviously corrupted. It's not like that. But Mormons love to think it's like that. It's like a translation that went from Hebrew to Latin, then into... I mean, Hebrew and Greek, then Latin, then Coptic, Syriac. And we have, in English... A translation from a translation from a translation and then that's not what a translation is a translation is transferring the text from the original language to our modern language that's it and we're also going to be learning mainly on this episode how we got our english bible and we're going to touch shortly on the main approaches that are taken to translate the bible and how to choose a good one so the bible wasn't written in english i hope everyone knows that 2,000 years ago, English wasn't even a language. London had just been established as a city. And it, it's nothing like it is now, by the way. So we must know how it came to us, the English Bible. Namely, that's by the process of inspiration, transmission, interpretation, and translation. With that specific order. So what is inspiration? This is going to be really short, because this deserves a whole, complete, hour-long episode. The Bible is entirely God's word. The authors themselves weren't inspired in some spiritual, emotional sense, and then they were led to write whatever God wanted them to. They were writing their words, but their words were completely led and inspired by the Holy Spirit, such, in such a sense that the, the text in and of itself are the very words of God. Theonustos, that's the, the Greek word used in 2 Timothy 3.16 for God-breathed. The apostles weren't God-breathed. No biblical author was God-breathed. The, the words in themselves are God-breathed. The Bible is entirely God's word, but it's also the writing of humans. Its unified and perfect message show us how the divine author works behind it. And the wide diversity of literature it contains shows us the humans who were used by God in writing it. It is the word of God spoken through humans. That's the uh, a term that's used to refer to that is double authorship. That the Bible is both authored by man and by God. So um, a lot of people say that this implies error because to err is human, right? Well, if we test that claim, 
No, to her, it's not human. Adam, before he sinned and fell, he was still human, yet he didn't err. And what about Jesus? He's, he's the epitome of humanity, and he never erred. He was infallible and inerrant. Does that mean he's not human? Of course not. He's still human. To err is not human. As Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and also from Mary, yet was sinless, so the Bible was written by men and God, yet the text remains pure and perfect. So God worked in, in his providence and prepared the many chose to write his word. And what, what do I mean by that? Let's take John, for example. John wrote the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is filled with Old Testament imagery. And why is that? Because John was so immersed in Old Testament scripture that God in his providence used that, that this overflowing mind of John with Old Testament imagery, and God used that in order for him to write Revelation. That's why Revelation is so filled with all this imagery, because John was filled with them from the Old Testament. He translated those images into what he saw, and they wrote upon that. So now we're going to touch on transmission, and we're going to see a bit, little bit of textual criticism, and if you want a good episodes of that, uh, you should visit Crisis the Cure podcast from our good friend uh, Nick Campbell. He's great on that. He has some great episodes on, on the King James and, the, and on the transmission of that. So the original documents penned by the prophets and apostles are called the autographa. These documents didn't go out of existence soon, as many people like to claim or think. I even used to think that. The, the, the original manuscripts, just I mean, the, the, the autographa just lasted for a couple of years, maybe. But they weren't made for that. They were made for distribution for many churches, ancient churches, for them to use it, to copy them, to preach from them. They didn't go out of existence, not even 10 years after they were written. They lasted for decades. Take this, for example, the oldest fragment of a manuscript we have, which is called the, the Ryland's Library Papyrus, or P52. It contains a portion of John 18. It's about Jesus before Pilate. That could have been a copy from the original, or a copy from a copy of the original. It's literally amazing. It, it's been dated from 125 to 150 AD. Uh, and from the Old Testament, we have amazing testimony from the, the purity and clarity with which the text has been transmitted throughout the ages. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947 in the caves of Qumran, and every single book of the Old Testament is found there that dates from about 2,200 years ago. That's 200 years before Christ. There's the Great Isaiah Scroll that you can go and see it in the in the website that they have. I can't recall the name right now, but it's Almost 99.99% the same as we have today. The whole book of Isaiah and every book except for Esther, if I'm not wrong, is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's such a great witness to the Old Testament's accuracy. And scribal errors, for example, in the, in the New Testament manuscripts, they weren't all identical, the New Testament manuscripts, to one another. And the responsibility to determine which is the correct reading of these variants belongs to textual criticism. And criticism is not something negative. A lot of people take it like that. Like someone is standing on top of the manuscripts and criticizing them for how good or how bad they might be. Uh, criticism means analysis, which is a science that compares 
manuscripts and determines which has the most likely reading from the original documents. This is important because we want the translation that most resembles what the original text said. The standard critical text that uh, Bible publishers use for the Old Testament is the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, uh, BHS for short. In the New Testament, we have the latest edition of the United Bible Societies, Greek New Testament, or Nestle Allen's Novum Testamentum. Those are the best texts for producing very accurate translation. So now we're going to jump into a brief survey. I say brief, but it's not actually that brief of English translations. We're going to start from prior to 1611, where the famous King James comes from. And then we're going to work up to there and follow up until the modern day. The first translation we have was commanded by Constantine to Jerome. Jerome was an amazing scholar and a, a very good preacher, I might say. He rejected the Apocrypha, which is real interesting. And he made his translation from the Greek text into Latin in the 4th century. It was dubbed the Vulgate. And for many years, the British Isles, we're going to go to the British Isles because we're talking about English translations, and we want to focus there. The British Isles around the English Channel had to use this Bible, the Vulgate, until the pre-reformer John Wycliffe, who was a, an amazing theologian and very, very courageous man. He, he made a translation into the English of the New Testament, Old English, very Old English, I might say. It actually looks more like some sort of Old German than, than it does our modern English. He translated it in 1380. And that was a translation from the Latin, from the Vulgate, into English, not from the original languages. So Wycliffe's translation wasn't all that accurate. Uh, Wycliffe died for doing this. He was treated as a heretic by, guess who, the Roman Catholic Church. And after his execution by Rome, his corpse was burned, and the ashes were thrown into a river in the United Kingdom somewhere. And after that, John Purvey produced an improved edition of Wycliffe's translation, which dominated the English-speaking world until William Tyndale, who came some 150 years after Purvey and Wycliffe. And with the print and press in existence, those, all those 150 years later, the Gutenberg Press, uh, Tyndale produced an English New Testament in 1526, which was based off the Textus Receptus, produced by the humanistic scholar Desiderius Erasmus. So it was a lot better than Wycliffe's, because it was produced not from Latin, but from the original Greek, regardless of how, of how accurate Erasmus's text was. And Tyndale went into hiding throughout all of Europe, and guess why? Same as Wycliffe, he, the, the Roman Catholic Church was after him because he had translated the Bible into the vernacular, which was forbidden by Rome. And he, he escaped for a good while until he was caught by Rome and burned also, sadly. Uh, before Tyndale's death, Miles Coverdale produced an entire translation of the Bible into English in 1535, including the Old Testament. Two years after Coverdale, John Rogers, who was the first Puritan martyr under Bloody Mary, he produced another Bible under the pseudonym Thomas Matthew. He had to use one because if, if he were to get caught by his name, he would have been killed a lot sooner than he actually did. And we know that Bible as the Matthew Bible. And after John Rogers, Coverdale revised it, the entire Bible, because it was a lot better than his translation. And he gave it the name 
I would better say, it adopted the name, the Bible, the Great Bible. That, that Bible was the first one authorized by England, by King Henry VIII. So every church in England could use that Bible. So after the persecution under Bloody Mary, many English Protestants fled from England. And under Miles Coverdale and William Whittingham, aided by John Calvin, who was a brother-in-law to Whittingham, and John Knox made a complete revision of the English Bible called the Geneva Bible. This one is still used until today. And it's quite a good translation, actually. This was the Bible that Shakespeare used, the Puritans, the Pilgrim Fathers, but it had notes. It was like the first study Bible, you can say. And the bishops of England were not able to use this Bible because of the Calvinistic footnotes. And also, the Geneva Bible was the first English translation in which the whole Old Testament was, was translated directly from Hebrew manuscripts and not from the Latin. And because the Geneva Bible was superior than the Great Bible as a translation, and in order to avoid the Calvinistic notes of it, the Bishop of Canterbury, Matthew Parker, presided over the translation of the Bishop's Bible, completed in 1568. This one was made because uh, bishops in England needed a translation that they could use in their churches legally with permission by the king that didn't have the Calvinistic footnotes from the Geneva Bible. They wouldn't use that because they weren't Calvinists, so... They were not allowed to do so, so they had to come with another translation without the the footnotes, and they call that the Bishop's Bible. And we go to Rome now, and Rome needed a similar translation, because they were falling behind greatly on that. And they produced their own Bible with uh, Romanistic theology clearly infused into it, which is called the, I don't know if I'll pronounce this correctly, the Douai Reims Bible. It was translated in 1593. But none of these previous translations were to be used by the English church in odd factions. So in 1604, King James I authorized a new translation led by the scholars of the top university. And it was finished in 1611, and that is the famous, the arch-famous King James Version. So let's touch on a couple of interesting facts on the King James. It's interesting to note that in the 1611 King James, which is not the one used now, by the way. Two printers were used in order to mass produce it to fill every church in England with the King James and to get rid of the Geneva and the Bishop's Bible. And the use of two, of two printing presses resulted in two different editions. Printing presses are like modern rubber stamps in the sense that they were mainly a huge stamp on the top and the pages were laid down at the bottom. The, the, the press on top was soaked in ink and then it was pressing as a page, and then another one, then another one. It was very a very laborious work, because they had to change the press's letters, like the stamp on it. They would have to switch every single letter for different pages. It wasn't always a perfect work. And that can be seen in the two different editions of the 1611 King James, because two printers were used, and it had a big textual variant in Ruth 3.15, with the word she and he. There were more than 200 variations between the He edition and the She edition. Sounds kind of funny. The He edition says, for example, in Matthew 26, 36, Then cometh Judas, instead of then cometh Jesus. That's one of the variants. But the big one is in Ruth 3.15, where the word She is in one version of the, six, of the 1611 King James, and the word He is on, on the other. So from the very beginning, it's really hard to determine which was the real King James version. 
And because language changes over time, the King James had to be revised. And major revisions occurred in 
the Holman Christian Standard Bible uses a little translation as far as the text doesn't demand a more dynamic approach. So now we're moving on into the process of translation. Some people think that all it takes to make a translation is just to pick a Hebrew phrase, make it English, and that's it. That's not how it's done. Hebrew or Greek, regardless. They don't have a common root to English. They're not Anglo-Saxon languages, so translation is not really easy. If we were to translate it literally, it would look as a mess of a sentence. It would be really complex to read. It wouldn't make sense at all. So translation also conveys interpretation in a certain sense. And to touch upon that, there are a number of things that, that separate one language from another. No two words are exactly alike in the Hebrew, Greek, or English. There are very, very few. Words mean different things in different languages. For example, angel. In, in English, when we hear the word angel, we immediately imagine this heavenly creature with a shining face and blonde hair, which is kind of racist, honestly, and with wings and with a long white robe, who's just hovering and playing, an, and playing a harp. That's not what angel means in the Greek. Angelos in the Greek means messenger. That's it. No, no one in the ancient times would have imagined with, with the word angel the kind of being that we imagine now. It just wouldn't have happened. So now we come to the two approaches of translation, which are formal and dynamic. That's in one side of the scale and the other one. The formal approach tries to stay as close as possible to the original wording and meaning. And translations that would fit into that category would be the NASB, HCSB, and the ESV, which all use the formal approach. The dynamic approach uses a thought-for-thought thought approach, not word-for-word, word. so the translators read the whole sentence, and they, then they translate it. Examples of this would, would be the NLT, New Living Translation, or the GNB, which is the, the, the Good News Bible. They use that method. We also have the paraphrases, as I mentioned earlier, and into that would fall the into that category. We would place the Amplified Bible, Message Translation, and the the Passion Translation, which aren't really translations. They're mainly commentaries based upon the author's interpretation of the text, which can be quite dangerous and confusing because you're you're going to tend to read the Message or the Passion as if they were Scripture, and most of the times they're not. So that's that's really dangerous. It's tampering with God's word, and that's that's a terrifying thing to do. And so we finish on how to choose a translation. It depends on what you want it for, mainly. You're going to want a translation for your, for your devotions or for your studies. Maybe you're going to want a different one for one. Pretty much any translation that doesn't deviate too far from the word-for-word -word method, the formal equivalency method, it's going to be good for devotions. But for study, you're going to go better with a, a translation that's based on the, on the Hebraic Stuttgartensia for the Old Testament and the, the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament or Nestle Allen for the New Testament. Uh, those are far superior in quality over the TR. I would recommend a formal equivalency to study, and I also use the ESV for, for devotions, honestly. It, it's such a good translation. It remains poetic where it should. I would also advise people to give preference to a translation committee over an individual person. For example, what we said about the message, translated by one person, Eugene Peterson, and the Passion, which is translated by Brian Simmons, if I'm not wrong. That's only one person doing a whole bunch of work, and you don't want to rely on one person's interpretation of the Bible. So choose committees over individuals, please. Now to close up, I, I just add that we have way too many English translations. It's really not necessary. 
So if you want to teach from a Bible or if you preach from a Bible, stick to one. And don't be going from one to the other. So try to stick to one. Pick a good one on what we have seen in this episode. And we're going to be recording with Alex soon on the Limited Atonement episode. If you follow us on Instagram, I'm going to have a, a debate soon on what Limited Atonement means. So we're going to be back with Alex on the next episode. And thank you all for listening. I hope I didn't bore anyone. Go give a follow to Crisis the Cure. Great podcast. And I hope this was useful for everyone. And we will see you next time. God bless. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.